Let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. Now, our Father of all people in the world who should know something about how to manage the money that you've entrusted to us, it's those that know you as Lord and Savior. And we thank you that you didn't leave us on some blind course just to be swept up with the ways of the world, but that as your people, we can learn what your word says. We know you save people at different stages of life, some who meet you in their 60s and 70s, and some who meet you as young men and women. But we thank you that wherever we are, you help us and you show us how we can take the truth of what you've given us and to apply it to our life. So help us tonight as we study what your word says about this subject of debt. And we pray and ask that the Spirit of God would help us, that he would encourage us when necessary, that he would rebuke us, that we might make the needed changes to fall in line with your truth. I ask you for your help and your strength as you are so faithful to give, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in section four of this course on debt, and so on this course on finances, and we're dealing with the subject of debt in section four. Uh, So far, Roman numeral one, we have spoken about God's basic plan and relationship to debt. We saw that there's a principle that God has established in His Word, that those people who obey Him are blessed where they are often the lenders. And those who disobey him would become the borrowers. And we saw that principle taught as it related to the nation of Israel. Uh, Then we began to ask some basic questions like, what is debt? And we looked at some of the differences between credit and debt. Uh, We asked the question, does Romans 13, 8 owe nothing to anyone but love? Does that prohibit debt? And we saw that it did not that God would not bless Israel in a way such that they could uh, be lenders if it was evil to lend money. But we saw the parameters in terms of what kind of debt is permissible and what kind of debt really goes against some of the clear teachings of Scripture. And then we went through a six-stage process of how people typically get into debt. It begins with a desire and then sometimes self-deception in terms of they've convinced themselves that Uh, They need this thing when they may not, and sometimes it leads to doubt in terms of doubting God's timing, God's goodness. It's followed typically by decision, and if they make enough of those wrong decisions, they get to a point where they can't pay their bills. It leads to delay, and that finally results to a damaged testimony. And it's unfortunate when God's people don't pay their bills on time or struggle in this realm of finances because they are either ignorant of what God has said, and that's the biggest problem today. The Scriptures are no longer being taught in our evangelical pulpits. Sound doctrine is not being taught. And so folks are either ignorant, but sometimes they're just disobedient. So that brings us tonight to five negative consequences of debt there on page 94 where we are in this course. Point A there under Roman numeral four is that debt can lead to slavery. It can lead to slavery. Proverbs 22 and verse seven tells us the person who borrows becomes the lender's slave. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. 
Now, understand, just a few verses before this, Solomon mentioned how the rich and the poor are the same and that they both have the same maker and both are answerable to God. So the the ground is level there. However, in verse 7, he reminds us of a specific way in which the rich are very different. Rich people tend to have more authority and voice in the community than the poor do, and Scripture gives many illustrations of that. And those who borrow money are often in a lower place than those who lend money, and so become the lender's slave. Now, when you read a verse like Proverbs 22, 7, it could certainly apply to the common practice of Israelites selling themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Uh, a very different kind of slavery than the abduction that took place in uh, 18th and 19th century England and America. Uh, But it was the kind of slavery where you were basically totally broke, destitute, could not feed your family, and you could agree under those terms to uh, go ahead and become a person's indentured servant. Of course, every seven years, all debts were canceled in Israel. But a person could at a particular time, as you know, go to the door post of the house because he loved his master and wanted to serve him, and then volunteered himself as a bond slave. And he would have an all put through his ear, and it was a sign that he had willfully given himself to the master. And interestingly, that same Hebrew word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of our Old Testament is the same word that describes a bondservant. We are called to be bond slaves of Jesus Christ. So it could certainly apply to that. In even the debtor's prison of 19th century America, we don't think much about that today. It used to be a time in America, you didn't pay your bills, you went to jail. Things were very, very different. And it still, though, has a modern-day application to it, if you think about it. Number six, the person in debt today often feels an emotional slavery to the person or to the company they owe money to, such that they feel like all they do is work to pay off the people or the companies that they owe. And in that sense, they are indeed the lender's slave. There is a lot of mental, emotional energy that is wrapped up in that. Very often when someone borrows from a lender, they are at least on an emotional and often on a legal level entering into a master-slave relationship. When you make a commitment to borrow money, you've entered into a legal contractual agreement. So number one, debt can lead to slavery. Point B there, debt can result in entanglement. It can result in entanglement. Uh, The Hebrew word for borrow, interestingly, that's used there in Proverbs 22.7 means to entangle, to intertwine, or to unite with. And of course, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4 It's a verse certainly written to pastors, but since pastors are to lead by example, it tells us not to get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Some Christians are so wrapped up in the affairs of this world, they have robbed their time and focus of investing in the next and the things of the kingdom of God. Not, number three, not being able to pay one's debts. It's a very serious and it's a draining matter. Entanglement, without a doubt, leads to frustration, leads to a loss of energy, a loss of focus, bondage, anxiety, and typically a loss of ministry and impact for the Great Commission. People who are consumed with having to pay their bills off and they're struggling to do that 
Their spare time thoughts are not often on the Great Commission, winning their next-door neighbor to Christ, their service in their local assembly. Jesus taught in the parable of the sower, a preoccupation with money will often lead to worry that, could, that would potentially keep some out of the kingdom and by application keep many Christians from being fruitful. You know the parable of the sower. The kingdom parables uh, contextually fall in Matthew chapter 13, and they're important because they really answer the question, why is it that the leadership of Israel rejected her Messiah? And you see that in Matthew chapter 12. And so Jesus then answers why they rejected him, and it deals with a heart issue, but he also affirms that the promises that God made to Israel concerning a coming kingdom were not obliterated, they were just delayed. But that's the context of the parable of the sower. And if you remember, it says here in verse 22 from Matthew 13, and the one on whom, on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The seed among thorns grew, but the stalks of grain were soon choked out. And so some, in hearing the word, initially respond and seem to grow for a while until the truth is choked out by competition from unspiritual things. The Bible's clear you cannot lose your salvation. And this has been a butchered parable. There was a book put out, I don't know, 30 years ago, Man in the Mirror. It totally ruined this parable. And it had nothing to do with what the author made it say. And he was talking about different classes of Christians on the different soils. Actually, contextually, when you read it in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is one parable found in all three, not in John. It's clear that he is dealing with three classes of people as to why they do not receive Jesus as Lord. Now, remember, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so God begins to awaken a heart, and He does that how? Through the Word. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And some people initially seem to have a response and an openness to the things of God. But they never cross that line into the kingdom because of what Jesus mentions here, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. This person is kept out of the kingdom, seven, as other concerns, including what Jesus calls the deceitfulness of wealth, which crowd out his decision to follow Jesus. His competing concerns for what Luke 8, 14, the parallel text, calls the worries and riches and pleasures of this life take precedence over his spiritual development. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people even come to this church, and there's an interest and a hunger, and when I call them or follow up, yeah, I got a lot of things to do on Sunday, and I've taken on, you know, a, a new job, and I've chosen to work on Sundays, and I don't really have time for church, and yep, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they crowd out the seed so that it doesn't bear fruit. Matthew, Mark 4.19 mentions how the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful, keeping the lost man out of heaven. But certainly by application, and certainly it can keep the saved man from growing. You could take it and apply it certainly to the saved man and that it keeps him from growing. The desire to always borrow and have more 
can be deceitful and that things, as Jesus refers to them, can drain spiritual vitality before someone realizes what is happening to them. It's kind of a slow, subtle deception of the evil one. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us that to successfully run the race, well, we need to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. And there the word entangled in Greek is the parallel to the Hebrew word that we read in Proverbs 22.7 for borrow, the identical Hebrew, Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right, debt also presumes upon the future. Debt presumes upon the future. When a person chooses to use what we have defined as unnecessary debt, and if you were not here last time, you might want to hear that message, because clearly not all debt is sin, but there is some kinds of debt that really violate and cross a line, and we call that unnecessary debt. So when a person chooses to use what we have defined as unnecessary debt, more often than not, they have mortgaged their financial future. They have made a commitment to pay a portion of their future income because they have used income that is presently unearned. (laughs) That's really what our government is doing, is it not? They are spending money we have not yet earned. We have not yet taken in as real revenue. We're just printing money letting people um, of other nations loan us money, and we sell them treasury bonds and other things, and, and we're spending money we don't have, and we're mortgaging our future. Someone going into debt assumes life will go just as planned, same job, same, or maybe more salaries, so forth, different scenarios, and that he will be able to pay back as anticipated. That's really the thought. I go into some of these unnecessary debts, and I am presupposing that I'll have a job next week, or I'm counting on a new bonus, or some kind of, uh, you know, inflationary increase, or whatever it is your employer may offer you. Do not boast about tomorrow, Proverbs warns, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. The Bible plainly teaches us that while we are to be responsible by planning for the future, we are not to be guilty of presuming upon the future. That's what James 4 and verse 13 echoes. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The apostle James, and he is one of the apostles, this is the half-brother of Christ. There's more than 12 in the New Testament. Um, There's also Paul, 13, and so on. Um, This this James, of course, is different from the James in the original 12. Uh, He comes to faith after the resurrection. But the Apostle James rebuked the kind of thinking that lives and makes its plans apart from a constant awareness of the hand of God, and so underestimating our own limitations, because we don't know what will happen tomorrow. James is addressing an attitude that goes far beyond making wise plans for the future. For this person does not say, let us go, but rather in Greek, it's in the indicative mood, expressing an opinion as a fact, we will go. How do you know? Sometimes when we go into debt, we are not thinking, I am doing this for God's glory and for God's kingdom. 
but with our own fleshly desires, we reason independently of God, I will do this for the next 60 months. I'm going to make this commitment. And many times it's not like, well, Lord, is this part of your will? Is this what you really want for me? It has nothing to do with God. We often think we just make the decision because we can get the credit or whatever, and we don't really seek God in the matter. The idea that our life, well, let me just read the verse, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. God often uses that kind of imagery. He says our life is like the weaver's shuttle real fast like the flower that sprouts up and then dies, like the grass that comes and then turns brown, like a vapor that you see on a cold day, there for a moment and then gone. And really, that's what it's like in comparison to eternity. The idea that our life was a vapor or shadow was a frequent figure of speech in the Old Testament. James asks us to consider the fragility of human life and the fact that we live and move only at the permission of God. Remember Paul when he preached there in Mars Hill and uh, he took this one little statue to an unknown God and he reminded those pagans that in the Creator God, it's in Him that we move and live and we find our being. Christians often borrow money they have not earned and suddenly they lose their job or experience a cutback in salary and cannot pay their bills or they suddenly die leaving their debts for their family. I checked it today from a government source, and now the average American dies with $61,000 and some change of debt. <laughs> Who does, who's going to pay that? Well, there's some you know, legal parameters, but this is one of the reasons very often it takes so long to probate some wills. And if you're not here for the section on a will, you should have one. If you're, if you're alive, you should have a will. And especially if you're a young couple with children, you should have a will. And if you weren't here for that section, you might want to definitely read that because you don't want someone else to decide if you both die, say, at the same instance, who is going to raise your children. Um, in either case, um, what number are we on? Twelve. Thank you. Someone's listening. <laughs> there must be a humility in our plans like that which the Apostle Paul had. Listen to some of these verses. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. So he set sail from Ephesus. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. There's a humility there. If this kind of humility before God is not found before we borrow money, even the kind of debt that is permissible, we may find ourselves in deep trouble. So there, there needs to be, I mean, God calls us to walk humbly before Him. It is really nothing but sheer arrogance to borrow money apart from seeking God, for the essence of sin is a proud independence. We see that in Isaiah 14 in the fall of Satan, and we certainly see it in Genesis 3 in the fall of Adam, our fall in and with Adam. Okay, we have a commercial. <laughs> How to buy a car debt-free, all right? Um, most Americans reason, I'll, you don't have to write in anything here, I'll always have a car payment. But an eternal car payment does not have to be a part of your monthly budget. While it may be normal for most Americans to have a car payment, it is better to be abnormal and so avoid the 6% 
interest payment averaging, the average payment now in America is $530 a month. The average new car buyer um, puts down $3,550. That's based on the average new car price of $35,500. So if you buy an average car, the average price is $35,500. It's virtually... um, a standard fact that you have to put 10% down now, sometimes you see some deal, zero down or whatever. <laughs> You're paying for it, my friend. They're getting you on the back end. Uh, they're going to get you at one point or another. So here's a simple plan to upgrade your vehicle while making no formal commitment to a bank or a car company. Year one, buy a cheap car for $2,000. That's less than the average $3,200 down payment. If you shop carefully and maybe ask a fellow Christian for help if you're not sure what to look for, that's what the body of Christ is for. We help each other. You should be able to get around with your used car for 12 months. During this time, make a payment of, and I'm not going with the average payment, I've knocked it off $130, $400 a month to yourself. The end of year one. And by the way, people come in for financial counseling all the time. And I see these $500 a month payments that they have committed to. So what we're reading here is the reality for most American families. So you make payments of yourself, say 400 a month. Now, if you want to make this a slower process, you could go 200 a month or 300 a month. But I'm just going below the average, $130, 400 a month. At the end of year one, you'll have $4,800. Your $200 vehicle can be sold for probably $1,800 giving you $6,600 at the end of year one. You say, is that possible? Sure. When I went to seminary, my wife was very pregnant. She didn't want to drive a car across the country, so I sold the one I had, and we went across in one car, and I got to seminary, and my goal, my seminary is so expensive. I I calculated the other day if I had to go to Boston College again, which is $68,000 a year, excluding room and board, If I had to go through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program, I'd have to spend over $300,000. It's an incredible thing that is happening with American education, even Christian seminary education. But our goal was to get out of seminary debt-free. So I bought a car from a fireman, a little Subaru, it was a beatbox, but the air conditioner worked. It looked like nothing for $500. I drove that all the way through seminary. I had to change two tires, and I went to one of these places where he had retread tires. They weren't even new. And I had to change the tailpipe. And when I was done with that car, I went through seven years of seminary in five years. I sold it for $500. (laughs) So God was good. Um, When you buy a new car, obviously there's a huge depreciation as soon as you drive it off the lot. But depending what kind of vehicle you buy, you're going to read somewhere between 25 and 60% of the car will be devalued within five years. Depends on the vehicle. But 25 to 60%. Worst case scenario, 60%. That's why a lot of people at five years are upside down on their loans. But my point is, I could find you a car, I believe it with all my heart, for 2000 bucks that will go anywhere in the United States. But if you're a little shaky on going on a long trip, I helped a guy do this one time. He said, go on vacation on this car. I said, well, rent a car for a week. Rent a car for a week. And he rented a car for a week. It was like a brand new vehicle while he was out there, saving, making payments to himself. 
Year two, buy a $6,600 used car intelligently. And I say intelligently because you can be sold a car. You ask any dealership, our own here in the church, they will tell you where you make the real money as a dealer is not on new cars, it's on used cars. That's where the money is in a dealership. So you want to shop intelligently. There's a lot of markup in cars, and they have to make a living, and I'm not chiding that. But shop intelligently because you want to buy a car, you don't want to be sold a car. While continuing to make a $400 a month car payment to yourself, so at the end of year two, you've saved $4,800. Your $6,600 vehicle is probably worth $5,500, giving you $10,300 at the end of year two. Year three, buy a $10,300 used car intelligently. While continuing to make a $400 payment to yourself, you have saved another $4,800. Your $10,300 vehicle is now worth about $9K, giving you $13,800 at the end of year three. Year four, buy a $13,800 used uh, car intelligently. While continuing to make a $400 a month car payment to yourself, so at the end of the year, you've saved $4,800, your 13-8 car. It's probably worth about twelve dollars uh, Listen, when you buy a used car, the depreciation is not nearly what it is with brand new cars. And so now you have approximately $13,800 at the end of year three. Year four, take your $13,800 brand new used car. People are going to say, this guy's always driving a new car. Gee whiz, he's always changing cars. Uh, $400 a month, you've saved another $4,800. Your car is worth $12K, say, at the end of the year. Now you can, at the end of year four, buy a $16,800 car. Year five, you can see the progression. Year six, buy a $19,600 used car intelligently. While continuing to make the payment, you've saved 4,800. Your 19.6 car is worth 17.5, giving you 22.3 at the end of year six. Now, what goes up during this time? Two things: insurance and property tax. And so you say, "Yeah, the new car I get, the more the insurance is, and the more the property tax is." Though it doesn't even begin to compare to, say, the brand new car that you bought, especially with all the bells and whistles they put in them, with all the electronics. Uh, That's what's driving the cost up of insurance. You know, you've got those mirrors with the cameras on the side. They're beautiful. They're really nice to have. I had one in one of my Hondas. But it drives the price of insurance up. It it drives those things up. So what you may discover at some point is you say, you know, we're doing okay in this uh, car number five here. We're going to drive it for a while because we want to pay off our mortgage. We don't want to be an American who spends 30 years paying off their mortgage. We, we want to pay off our mortgage that much sooner. We'll talk about that a little bit later. All right, commercial over, point D, all right? D, debt allows us to live beyond our God-given means. The Bible teaches us to be content in God's provision. Look at the word content repeated here in this text. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul says, I, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in, with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul could say that he had learned to be content, 
because this is not something that comes naturally. It doesn't come natural, but it must be learned through the truths of Scripture. It's something we learn. God knows very often that until we are successful at living in humble means, that we cannot know how to live in prosperity without our losing perspective. Um, I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas. They asked me to start it uh, as I was finishing seminary, and we worked with CEOs of major corporations, but it was an organization that was started by a guy named Art DeMoss. Art DeMoss uh, borrowed $15,000 to start the Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. It was a billion-dollar corporation at his death. Anyway, um, Art uh, lived in a pretty normal house, but he owned a palatial mansion in the Philadelphia area. And he'd bring in the time people like Roy Rogers, some of you don't know who he is, or Tom Landry, and this was back in that day. And these guys would share their testimony. He'd bring in all these businessmen and different people. And he was certainly not a respecter of persons. If you knew Art, he was incredible. It didn't matter to him. He'd share the gospel with the CEO of a corporation or the maid who was cleaning his room. Everyone was important to him. Anyway, one of the things that he did, because he was so wealthy, is one, he made his kids buy their first car, and two, he made sure that they bought a used car, which most of them had to do at that time because they couldn't afford a new one. What was he teaching them? He was teaching them to live in humble means. And what you often see if someone comes from a very wealthy family and they're given everything on a silver platter, when they get those things, they often lose those things. Or they are enraptured by a bad perspective rather than with an eternal perspective. So God often allows us to live in humble means and in prosperity. Since the Apostle Paul, number four, wrote that he knew how to live in humble means, and since in the same breath, a few verses later, he promises that God will supply all your needs according to his riches, he's making a clear distinction between needs and wants. If Paul walked by faith and he believed that God would supply every need, and he knew what it was to live in humble means, then he's making a distinction between wants and needs. He'll say to Timothy, if we have food and clothing with this, we shall be content. When a Christian expands his lifestyle beyond what God has provided for them to live on, beyond what God has provided for them to live on, by his action, he is saying, God, I reject your plan for my life. I'm not content with the financial resources you have given me. When you go into debt, you borrow to get what you want now rather than to wait until God provides it for you. I want it now. Choosing to live beyond your God-given means is sin. If God gives you $50,000 a year to live on and you're going to spend sixty-five dollars this year, you've expanded your lifestyle beyond what God entrusted you. And the Scripture would call that sin. Remember, you cannot spend yourself into wealth only into financial ruin, only into financial ruin. Spending 110% of your income only leads to financial hardship, and that is unwise stewardship and a poor testimony. I'm reminded of what Jesus said, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Jesus, if you know that, we studied it in the first session on stewardship. There's a parallel 
between the kind of eternal treasure that God allows you as a Christian to store up in heaven and the way you manage the finances that God has put in your pocket. Christians often yield to this temptation because they have no self-discipline, sometimes a poor self-image, or they listen to advertising that appeals to their greed. The only solution is to live within your God-given means. Page 99. Debt, and I'm talking here about unnecessary debt, and I've made that distinction last time, typically demonstrates a lack of faith. It typically demonstrates a lack of faith. For instance, when we use a credit card because we do not have the cash to provide, and I'm not talking about for convenience. Next week, we'll talk about the use of credit cards. It's virtually impossible. You'd be hard-pressed 363 days out of the year to ask me if I had a dollar in my pocket. I don't carry cash. I I just don't. I don't use it. I don't need to. Only a few days a year do I have to have it. I use a credit card. But I've never paid any interest and have never once, and I got my first credit card when I was 17 years old, got a gas card. I've never paid a dime in interest, never been late, not once, by the grace of God. And part of the instruction that my dad gave me. But still, um, when you use a credit card because you don't have the money to pay the groceries, you don't have the money to purchase the new battery that the car needs, then there is mismanagement of funds. And I'm not trying to beat anyone down. I'm going to help you if you're in that realm. And so many people are who come to our church. And again, this is not purely a product of salary, as I told you in that Bible study I had. I mean, some of these guys were making millions of dollars a year. One guy, he owned the largest Mercedes dealership in the world, and he went broke. It was just mismanagement. And so it's not, well, if I made, you know, 100000 a year instead of 50000 a year, things would be different. It's really not. That's not usually typically the issue. So this demonstrates a lack of faith because God's desire is to be our provider and not the organization represented by the credit card. Very often, credit cards have become the solution to our problems rather than prayer and seeking God. Yet Jesus instructed us to pray. Here in the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Those are daily bread needs. Daily bread needs are like food and clothing and the battery for the car. Credit card and similar debt short circuits the blessings that God wants to give us because of our failure to wait upon Him to provide in His time and in His way. God very often wants to use, He wants to use finances to protect us, to teach us lessons, lessons about faith, lessons about His goodness, about His provisions. Now, here are some biblical examples of those who chose not to use debt. Joash, Moses, Ezra, David, Nehemiah, Paul, Jesus, and the twelve. If it is in God's plan for someone to borrow, he must pay the debt back. Again, Psalm 37, 21, the wicked borrows and does not repay but the righteous shows mercy and gives. 
You know, those few times, it's interesting to go back to a couple of early presidents in the 19th century when our nation had to borrow money. One of them quoted this verse of Scripture, that we need to pay off what we've borrowed. And I fear more and more that our government and the people are just so lost. They're living wickedly. They are spending your money, money that has never been earned, and there seems to be no end to it. To borrow and not to pay back, of course, is to steal. Again, from Ecclesiastes, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying for it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. If you've come to a place of financial ruin and the creditor will not forgive your debts, you should do everything in your power to pay them back. Now, if they'll forgive your debt, great. But if they won't, you have a moral obligation. And Jesus said, we are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Okay, let's ask, we'll start this section, um, some commonly asked questions about debt. First, are consolidation loans advisable to solve my debt problems? This is a question I have often been asked. Are consolidations advisable to solve my debt problems? If this term is new to you, debt consolidation is the combination of several unsecured debts. It might be a furniture loan, appliance loan, credit cards, medical bills, into one lower monthly bill with the illusion of a lower interest rate. These loans are attractive because they have lower monthly payments, but most often are extended over a longer period of time with the interest rate set at the discretion of the lender or creditor. The people who usually take these loans do not have the best payment behavior or credit score, and so the interest rate is typically not lower but higher. It is important that one reads the fine print, because even if you qualify for a loan with low interest, there's no guarantee the rate will stay low. Some of them have a flexible um, changing interest written into the loan itself, or in four years it's going to match a different number, and so you got to read it really, really carefully. As a general rule, this is not a workable solution for most people. Did I skip anything? No. no, okay. As a general rule, this is not a workable solution for most people who are in debt. Like a politician during an election year, they make a lot of promises but do not always deliver. The interest rate is not usually the problem of the person's spending habits. Now, keep in mind, when you hear the sales pitch to consolidate, you're only restructuring your debt, not eliminating it. And most people I have counseled with financially do not need debt reordering, but debt reformation. With that said, if you are drowning in a world of high interest on your credit cards, a debt consolidation loan can, in some cases, both reduce your monthly payments and pay down debt more quickly. But again, let me emphasize that while they may appear cheaper, very often they are not. Most of these loans actually cost you more in interest because they spread the payments over a longer period of time. 
It's like getting a seven-year car loan rather than a three-year loan. You will pay less each month, but your total interest payments will not be, will be a lot higher. So you go into a, a dealership and they say, well, what, what, what can you afford? What's your payment? What can you do for a payment? I said, I don't, I don't care anything about a payment. I want to know what the car costs. What does the car cost? Oh, you can only afford Ford three fifty a month. Oh, we can make that happen. So they take a three-year loan and they span it into five or six, and you can get ten years now on a car. That's inconceivable to me. The same is true even if our, your consolidation loan lowers your interest rate. You're spreading it out. It's costing you more, typically. Not always, but typically. Using a consolidation loan usually ends up costing more interest over time. Because while you may lower your monthly payments, the lower payment usually comes at a higher cost by extending it out over more years. Remember that extended terms mean extended payments, and your goal should be to get out of debt as fast as you can which we will address later on in this section next week. Unless a person has dealt with the root of their debt problem, mismanagement, greed, lack of self-control, etc., as soon as they clear their credit cards and other small debts, they eventually go right back to abusing them. Pastor Vince and I, who have done a lot of financial counseling, you know, and people come in and they, well, we look at all their debts. We're trying to help them. And three years ago, they got this consolidation loan, and they canceled out and emptied out all their credit cards and got it into one nice little payment. And now they've filled up all those credit cards, and they're in double trouble. Unless you address the root problem, it's just going to repeat itself over and over and over and over again. Um, Fifteen, I've counseled, oh, I did that one. No, and I didn't. I have counseled too many people, too many of God's people who do not have a budget plan. That's the next section, section five, by which to live within their means, by paying cash and spending less. And so most of the time after, they're, after they consolidate their debt, the debt grows back. If you do not have convictions rooted in Scripture concerning stewardship, that's section one of this course. Concerning giving, that's section two. Concerning saving and investing, that was section three. Debt, that's the section we're in. Wise planning, that's the next section. If your convictions in these major realms are not rooted from the Word of God, without these God-given money habits, it is extremely likely you will go deeper into debt. When debt consolidation becomes something that masks the underlying issue instead of fixing it, you will typically make things worse. Very often, the one taking a consolidation loan finds himself in double trouble because the credit cards that were paid off once again begin to fill up. Estimates suggest that at least 70%, that number came from Crown Financial Ministries, 70% of those who consolidate their debt end up as much or more debt a few years later. The problem for most people with a consolidation loan is that while making their monthly payments more manageable, taking the loan does not require them to change their poor stewardship habits. Your goal as a good steward of what God has entrusted to you should not be to consolidate your bills, but to erase them. That's your goal, to erase them. 
consolidation loans offering a quick fix in the form of better interest and a lower payment will only be helpful if you are financially disciplined enough to change your lifestyle so that you do not go into debt again. Sometimes, to further complicate the problem, people try to consolidate their debts using a home equity loan. While this might be a more reasonable approach in terms of interest costs, they're almost always lower in terms of the interest costs. It can put your home at risk, and that's a big factor. If you use a home equity loan to consolidate your debts, while it may seem like a good idea with today's incredibly low interest rates, Remember that you are going from an unsecured debt to a debt that is secured by your home, which for most Americans is their most important asset. I would never recommend a consolidation loan using your home unless you have at least 20 to 25% equity in your home when you borrow against it. And that, you know, is... Really, that's like the bottom number, 20 to 25% equity in your home. And it's a little fluid right now because interest rates are so low. I mean, we haven't seen interest rates like this since the 1960s. You know, my first home I bought, the going prime best interest rate you could get was 12%. I mean, it's so low right now, but what has that done? It has inflated the cost of housing. And so some people think, well, you know, I've got all this equity in my home. They may not. And of course, the 2008 downturn, it was only a recession, not a collapse, showed really how pumped up some of the equity values people thought they had that they weren't really there. Remember, if you default on the loan, you're at risk of foreclosure, just as if you defaulted on your original mortgage. Again, I may be preaching to some of you in the choir, so to speak, and this is a non-issue. But your job is to teach your children and to counsel those that you're going to help. This is real life. This is where a lot of American Christians live. Should I get this consolidation loan? Should I get this home equity loan? Believe me, we deal with this all the time. For this reason, I would never recommend a home equity loan unless, first, the lack of discipline has been solved, and second, only to avoid bankruptcy. It's kind of a last-ditch effort. As I will show you in this section, usually if you have a high credit card interest or other debt payments, the best solution is usually to have a plan to pay them down one by one, saving you a lot of interest over time. Beyond the above dangers, for many who consolidate their loans in order to make the monthly payment less worrisome, they very often end up making only the minimum payment on the consolidation loan. Some of the consolidation loans are structured where you only have to make a minimum payment. And they get right back into the same dirty trap. This leaves you paying a great deal more in interest over the life of the loan. If you intend to please God, if you borrow money, you must pay it back. Again, the wicked borrows and does not repay. The righteous shows mercy and gives. A much wiser approach is never to get into the debt to begin with by living within your God-given means. And that's what you want to be teaching your children. That's why we need more kids here on Wednesday nights. They need to know this. These are really important truths. Once again, the key to getting out of debt and staying out of debt is finding contentment in God's provision. 
Paul said, not that I speak from want, but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Let's ask this question. Are debt settlement companies an advisable way to solve debt problems? You hear these companies advertise all the time, you know, I was in all this debt and this company helped me out and now I'm able to buy a house and all this stuff. And if the term is new to you, debt settlement means you hire a company to negotiate a lump sum payment with your creditors for less than you owe. Debt settlement companies usually charge between $1,500 and $3,500 to negotiate your loans to either reduce the interest or to forgive some of the principal. Sometimes a company, even a credit card company, if, you, if they are convinced from the debt um, management company that you're so deep in debt that you're on the edge of bankruptcy, sometimes they'll even forgive some of the principal. But most of the time, they will forgive the interest, or at least a portion of it, and a lot of late payments. Foolishly, many think this is once again a quick fix. Oh, yeah, I just hired this debt management company. I paid them $3,200. And so what do they do? They stop making even the minimum payments while the company is unsuccessful in some or all of their negotiations, all the while adding late fees and additional interest. It happens all the time. Proverbs says, steady plotting brings prosperity. Hasty speculation brings poverty. If you choose the option of using a consolidation loan to get out of debt, which 99% of the time I discourage, stay away from a consolidation service. Consolidation loan slash debt services do not do what you cannot do yourself or someone could help you to do. I had a Marine come into my office one day. He was $128,000 in debt. He was an enlisted guy. And, you know, he had this furniture payment and this appliance payment and two car payments and a piano payment. And I, it just was beyond imagination. Because so I have a son who's a captain in the Marine Corps, and he says, Dad, these guys who come in, you know, most of them come in out of broken homes, and there's no dad there. And he said, you know, I'm kind of mentoring a lot of these guys. And he said, you know, I told me about this guy he saved recently. He was going to buy this Mustang, this used Mustang at this incredible price at like 18.5% interest. And he went down to the dealership and they got the thing canceled. You know, it's just, um, but, but with this, this Marine, it took him a long time. In fact, he had left here, moved away, came back one Sunday on a Sunday morning. He said, Pastor Carl, this is like seven years later. I want you to know I'm out of debt. Praise God. He, he was diligent, and he was committed to getting out of debt. But, but sometimes, like, um, we've gone to bat. Pastor Vince does more of this. Originally, I did all the financial counseling. I just can't anymore. I, you know, I, I have about 10 to 15 spots for people to come in during the week, and some weeks are just packed, and I can't see anybody else. So, Pastor Vince and some other people in the church helped me with that. But sometimes we can call these companies or, you know, just a credible Christian can to help some of these believers who are so deep in debt and you negotiate and sometimes they can knock off a lot of interest and, 
you can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. The service these companies provide usually require hefty upfront or sometimes monthly fees when you run your payments through them. And that's what some of them want to do. You do it through them. And again, for some people, they just lack so much discipline. That's an answer for them. But very rarely are such services a good idea because they usually cost you much more money in the long run. Those most successful utilizing a consolidation loan are those who eliminate the middleman of a consolidated debt service and who have solved the root problem, the root problem of financial irresponsibility. Once again, in using a debt settlement company, you're only treating the symptoms of your money problems and never get to the core of why you have these issues in the first place, namely poor stewardship. And again, I, I don't say this in a you know, combative, beat-you-down way. We're, we're the product of our culture. And it wasn't always this way in America. There was a time when very few people got car loans. Most people in the early years, really through the 1950s, paid cash for a vehicle. And then they started offering one-year loans and two-year loans and three-year loans. But our whole mindset has really changed. We're a debt-driven culture. Debt reduction services usually only delay the inevitable while, making more of your, while taking more of your money in the process. Remember, you do not get into debt overnight, and neither will you get out of debt overnight. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." I'm going to finish, and I'll pray at the end. And those who have been given a request, you're going to take stewardship of that and hopefully pray tonight. C, is it wrong to co-sign a note? Is it wrong to co-sign a note? Technically, the Scripture never uses the term co-signing. However, there are Bible verses that deal with cautioning us about assuming responsibility for another person's loan. Solomon, who's credited with writing most of the Proverbs, was given much wisdom by God, and so God gave us Proverbs to help us to live a wise life. Listen to what Solomon said in the 22nd chapter, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? When you co-sign a loan with someone else, you are saying, if he doesn't pay the loan in full, I will pay what he still owes. You are just as responsible for the loan repayment as the principal signer. Now, as a general principle, the Bible teaches it is poor judgment to co-sign a note because you put your household belongings, what he calls here your bed, at risk, and you will surely suffer harm, but those who hate the idea of co-signing, he says, they're secure. It's a beautiful imagery. But he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. These verses do not say never to co-sign a note. But clearly, they say that it, can be for a, that it can be a foolish display of poor judgment. In addition, God warns against co-signing 
a note with a stranger. As this verse indicates, to put up security for a stranger, someone you don't really know. And some of God's people, because they have such generous hearts, sometimes they're just gullible. They lack discernment. To put up security for a stranger is a very dangerous decision, as so many have learned the hard way. Some have co-signed a note for a trusted friend they have known for a very long time. But it is certainly unwise to do this for a stranger. Listen, it is unwise very often to do it for a friend and a family member. I know a businessman who lost virtually everything. And he had spent like 30 years building his company. But he was conned by one of his own family members. And he lost just about everything. He was starting all over in his 70s. It was very sad. And undersigning, in underscoring the lack of wisdom in such a decision, God tells us that even after co-signing a loan, the co-signer, realizing how he has jeopardized his own financial well-being, should ask to have their arrangement voided, if he can do it. That's what Proverbs 6 says, my son, if you have become surety for your stranger, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have caught, been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Get out of it if you can. He's just exhorting us on the front end so that we never really do it to begin with. Often parents will sign notes or loans with their children, which is typically unwise if the parents are not totally prepared to take over the loan. Someone came to me a few years ago and he said, Pastor Carl, what do you think? My son wants, uh, you know, he wants his car and he's asked me to co-sign. What do you think? I said, um, when you bought your first car, did your dad co-sign for you? Oh, no, I earned the money. I saved it. And if your son can't buy that car outright, he's not ready to buy the car that he wants. You know, but again, oh, I got to have that new car, you know? Or I got to have even this nice, super nice used car. He doesn't have the money to pay for it if you have to co-sign for it. It's just not wise. And when are you going to teach your children financial responsibility? My dad always told me, he said, look, now if you run an errand for me, yeah, you can use my car. If you want to go out with your friends or something or... You're going to have to get your own car, and you're going to have to put the gas in it, and you're going to have to pay the insurance on it. And I did that with all of my children. I will say I helped my daughter just a little bit, something about a girl. <laughs> she bought this old used Mercedes for six grand, and I put 500 in it. But, you know, they earned their money, and they paid the insurance and put the gas in it. They have to learn sometime. It's just not automatic. Oh, they walk down the aisle, they're married, and they've got all this financial wisdom. We have to teach them. As a general principle, those who need to have a note co-signed are either not yet ready to take on the debt or have been poor stewards of God's resources. The reason the person needs a co-signer is because the lender does not have confidence the individual on their own can pay the loan back. 
When you co-sign a note, you are very often perpetuating the person's problems of bad credit instead of letting them suffer the consequences of their poor money management and stewardship. Saying no might be the best help that you could offer them. This will force them to come to terms with their stewardship because if they are Christians, they need to heed the words of the Lord, again, found in Luke 16, 11, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, worldly riches, you can render it, unrighteous mammon, another translation says, who will entrust the true riches to you? In addition, the Bible virtually prohibits your co-signing a note as the backer unless you have the extra resources on hand to pay the note. Again, Proverbs 17, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Generally, it is best not to ever co-sign because to do so is to enter into a legally binding relationship in debt which is not advisable. When you co-sign, you are agreeing to take on debt, and your goal is to be debt-free because, again, the bar is the slave of the lender. If we assume that the lender who originally turned down the loan was correct, there is a very good chance that the co-signed loan will not get paid. While co-signing a note for a non-stranger might be permissible, it is wrong if you do not have the resources to back up the pledge. This is why you must have the full resources, the full resources behind you if you do co-sign. And if they do not pay you back or you have to chase them down for the money, the relationship will be greatly strained and maybe even broken, and that's not good. When you co-sign a note, you're helping them to go into debt, and very often you are robbing that individual of the opportunity to watch God provide, and you're helping to short-circuit their growth as stewards. In most cases, when notes are co-signed, it is because someone wants something nicer now rather than waiting on God for his timing. If God says that those who co-sign a note typically demonstrate that they lack sense, and if God says when guaranteeing a note for a stranger, you will typically suffer for it, then you would be wise to listen to God. For one to co-sign a note and be in the will of God, they must be discerning, commit the situation to prayer, possibly seek the counsel of someone else, and have, again, the resources to back it up. Now, we still have some other questions to answer. We'll talk next time about how do I get out of debt. It becomes very motivating if you get a handle on this and you, you know, I tell young couples who are in their 20s, I said, you should try to get your house paid off by the time you're 50 if you can. Is that possible, Pastor? Yes, it is. It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of strategy. It's all a matter of stewardship in this whole realm. Now, our Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a guide, that your word is a lamp under our feet and a light to our path, that we of all people should be a testimony to the nations, to the ethnoi, the goyim, the, the pagans of how good and gracious and faithful you are. You promise to meet our needs, and yet so many of your people do not even look to you to provide the needs because they are so entangled. 
But I thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for the grace that you showed me early in life that you've kept me from so many things. That was your grace. And thank you for the grace that you show so many who are in a mess, but you meet them where they are at. And you help them a day at a time to go in your direction. Father, we want to remember those in our fellowship who are in South Africa. We pray your blessing as they work with the cozy people and others and that you would give them open doors of opportunity and the hundreds of children that will come to these vacation Bible schools. Many who will hear the gospel for the first time would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. We think of the teenagers who are being gathered across Alaska and brought to this camp. Thank you for Haley, who found Christ here as a high school student. I thank you that she would come on Sunday all by herself without any parents. And you won her heart. And now she's a missionary there. Bless her. Bless her husband. Bless the work there with the team that is helping them. And we pray for even those who are uh, working with Vacation Bible School in this next week with, or this week at the YMCA. Again, many of those children, Father, we know are unchurched. Speak into their hearts and bring them into your kingdom. We love you, our Father, and we praise you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.